When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, this is home. This is my little piece of Ireland. I love being here. And even though I was away overseas for many years, I always wanted to be back in this kind of setting again. So this is it for me. Tom O'Byrne was born in Dublin. He lives in Monard Glen, a wildlife sanctuary near Blarney in County Cork. Tom is a naturalist and wildlife expert. He is six feet six in height and leonine in appearance and sports a beard that Captain Ahab would be proud of. He possesses the enthusiasm of a David Bellamy, the eloquence and charm of a David Attenborough, and the outback know-how of Mick Dundee. His interest in the natural world began at an early age. <laughs> I started off as a child. <laughs> but uh, the thing is that, well, I suppose I had a perfectly ordinary kind of childhood uh, in that I felt it was ordinary and it was... Uh, an ordinary suburban kind of setting and there was nothing terribly unusual about it but my parents were a little interested in the environment without preaching about it and I think I had my questions answered when I was very small. Children are always very uh, curious about things and given the opportunity to get an answer to their questions they learn quickly and you know I, I think I learned I think while I was about four years of age or so I uh, really understood quite a, a number of things. I know that I was told that I knew the parts of a flower and all that kind of thing while I was about four or five. And every other child uh, is in the same... That We're all at that size uh, very curious. So I think it's just a case of the, if the adults would only impart a little knowledge or direct them so that they can get the answer to their question, uh, I think that's the, the start of things. I... Living in the uh, in Dundrum area, I was able to, with friends, go up the mountains regularly. So I had the all the quarries and all the wild mountainside forests. Trees were all around the place at that stage. An awful lot of if I go through that same area now, I see that it's a different, completely different kind of area. We'd be sort of up to our knees in leaves in the winter. Of course, our legs were shorter in those days, <laughs> but generally it was just that it was a very there were a lot of, we could easily get tadpoles we could easily go fishing in the little river at the end of the road there were kingfishers there and there were many different sorts of fish around uh, there were lovely we could, like birds nests were very numerous and we were we had a great uh, time going around looking at all these things climbing the trees that were around it seemed to be a thing that we did in those days we spent a lot of time climbing to the tops of the trees as far as we could get. Uh, every tree had to be climbed. Well, Monard is a sort of place that uh, 
was always explained to me as being down in Cork, where my uncle and aunt lived, and my cousins lived. And so as I grew up up there, uh, I, I was being... It was every place that they came across that was very beautiful. It was always compared to Monard because Monard had a lot of people living here in those days and beautiful gardens and people who knew the place would realise that it was a bit of a fairyland-like setting here. Very beautiful place. And um, so I visited the place when I was five years of age and also I visited it before I went off to Australia. And... Uh, I told them, of course, when I was going off to Australia that I was going to come back and get the place uh, that I'd wait till you see now I'd come back and try and get this place. And when I came back, it, it had just been put on the market and I'd made a private deal with the people who owned it. And it, it, all, it took me years to realise what had happened because I'd been thinking about it too long. Uh, it, it, it Just everything fitted together very nicely. It's as though it was meant to be a sort of thing, you know. Well, hundreds of years ago, there was a wrath on the hill up behind us and that was an interesting thing. Obviously, there was a, a, a pre well not necessarily prehistoric settlement here but there was certainly a very ancient settlement of people in the area and being the sort of place that it is with a lot of water flowing through it um, it must have been at least the, a place where they'd come down to fish or to do a bit of uh, hunting or something like that in uh, as the years increased of course if you wanted to go back very very far uh, there would have been a very large river coming through here uh, after the ice age and, and it, it would have got smaller as time went on but melting ice, it's thought, uh, made most of these grooves in the ground here. But in recent times, um, they, the obvious force of the water was, was uh, something that they used, and mills of various types obviously flourished here because the, the, uh, the dye wood side of it and the, the, the making dye here is, what, is something that must have been very interesting. Then they, in 1792, they tell me it was about that time when the ironworks uh, got going properly. And the, it means basically that uh, the, they dammed up the place. There were, there were natural waterfalls here, but they built them up. And there were groups of houses and mills in three positions down along this valley. And uh, it hasn't really changed that much, but of course the houses got a, an upstairs put on them in the last century. They were just single cottages, and I've got old woodcuts that show these uh, cottages as just one story. Well, to me, it, it's, a, it's a place where simply it is a mixture of a whole lot of different elements on the edge of the water. So it's the edge of the water type place, the edge of the forest. Um, it's a place where wildlife, uh, the different forms of wildlife, like to be. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice place for me to be. Uh, just simply living here is beautiful. Good morning. Good morning, how are, you? how are you? I'm very well, thanks. You've got a good bus nice load of nice enthusiastic youngsters there. <laughs> so. Well, out there now, lads. <laughs> very good. I think I've seen some of these people before when they were a little younger. And if you meet Tom when you were in um, Louis, uh, uh, only once at all? I, I recognise some people anyway. But it's nice that everybody's grown a little bit since I saw them last. People expect me to recognise them, and after a year or two, at this age, they're growing so rapidly, they look like a totally different person. I sometimes meet people that I've thought ten years ago, you know, some guy with a moustache and two children, and he's surprised I don't recognise him. He's telling me he was the bane of my life, like, <laughs> a few years back. You know? yeah. 
So we'll get together here and we'll start heading off up the, the avenue. Inside the gate here, we'll get together and I'll explain what we're going to see and how we'll, how we'll proceed through the place. Okay. The tree behind me always has a goldcrest's nest in it. The goldcrest has a nest as big as a... Well, it's almost as big as a tennis ball, but it's suspended by cobwebs underneath the branch. So, so it uses cobwebs to make little loops, little straps over the top of the branch, and the nest swings around underneath the branch. It's not stuck to the branch. And the nest is made of cobwebs and moss, and as the babies get bigger, the nest gets bigger. So it starts off very small, and as the young ones... And you can see the young ones struggling in the nest, and you can see the nest moving and stretching and so on. It's like a big elastic bag, but it's uh, very cosy, lined with feathers. So that's a beautiful little nest. Of course, the goldcrest is the smallest bird around here, and that's him singing just in the background. He might sing again for us there. But while we're... Oh, look, there's a, a fight between two rooks as they tumbled out of those trees there. They're all t- taking up positions that will be the nest sites for them later on. Now, we stopped here because looking across the river here, there's a tree that's partly dead and it's got a lot of holes in it. And, of course, uh, there's a, a bat roost in one part, a whole lot of Leisler's bats living in, in one. They're the biggest bats you find in Ireland. They're living in one part of the hollow tree, um, there's uh, the uh, stock dove nesting in another hole. There's a starling ne- nesting in a hole above that. And uh, there's a hole at the bottom. And otters often sit in a cavity that goes in from the base of the tree into a little platform inside. And so that tree, even though it looks not marvellous from a, uh, a forester's point of view, it's nearly all falling down. It's actually it's, it's the one special tree in the whole place a lot of creatures are hoping to get a, a flat in that, in, that, in that apartment block. It's called Mind Your Own Business. <laughs> it's, a, it's a plant, it's a, a little sort of herbaceous plant that people grow in their gardens, and Mind Your Own Business is the name of it, they tell me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an ordinary ivy there. And, of course, you've got the various mosses. There's a little bit of maiden, maidenhair fern there. But... Um, You'll find a mixture of exotic plants here mixed with the, uh, mixed with the, uh, the wild ones because there used to be gardens here one time. That's the same it's thing shamrock. again. It looks a little bit like shamrock, but it's called Mind Your Own Business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it grows very close to the ground. It, it's very, <laughs> it's very, <laughs> he said it to me. He said yeah. the same too. Yeah. Tell me, this is that too. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, he doesn't. No, it's a she actually. It's a little she. Uh, well, th- these are the ones. These are sort of animals that that uh, the the, the well the ferrets were bred from these animals, and it's so domesticated ferrets. Uh, domesticated polecats are called ferrets, but uh, they're lovely things, aren't they? Like well, I tell you what, I'll go down here a little bit and then you'll be all able to get around me a little bit better. So Can if I you go further them? down... I rubbed them. Can we hold them? Yeah, you can. So, it, But just hold them very carefully. If you hold them around the shoulders a little bit, uh, he, he feels quite happy that way. But see, he's an interesting little animal. Now, he's the nearest thing you're, you're going to be able to find to... to um, to, to, he's the nearest thing to a stoat. <laughs> he's got scratchy little nails. He, no, I don't want him to get too nervous, but um, so I'll hold him for a moment. But it's uh, a stoat is exactly the same sort of an animal—a long, skinny animal with uh, very short little legs and rather a nice little face. 
They've got very sharp teeth and they're very capable of using them. But um, it's used to people and it has no reason to be cranky about people. But um, they have, uh, and ferrets of course, have a, a bad name for being rather vicious. No, they're not indigenous. They're not uh, native to Ireland. You only find them in Wales and in Europe and places. Except that you will find the domesticated ones in this part. Uh, it is young. It's only a year old, yeah. She's the only one I have, yeah. But the, she's a lovely little thing. And she's, she's very funny. No, no, she just, uh, she was uh, uh, a young, young one when it came here. Uh, they live about, uh, about, around about ten years, roughly. Well, I've, I've been, I reared her, so she's tame and she's easy going. I let, I let her onto the ground here, and you'll see the way she behaves. They've got a good sense of humour, and they love to play. <laughs> so, <laughs> they're more playful than a cat, really. Well, I was about around 20 when I um, headed for Australia, but the thing is that I got into the swing of it very quickly there. I had cousins there, and they put me in, in, in touch with things quickly. They pointed out things, gave me all sorts of feelings and understandings of how the place worked and what you could and couldn't do over there. And so I feel that I very quickly adapted to enjoying the place and I started off with the idea that I'd spend two years there and uh, <laughs> I spent about 12 years there, you know. I was always living in the bush or out with various people. I was droving, mining and doing all kinds of things for the first few years and then I got into the marine side of things and the exploration in the mangrove swamps and with the research vessel and all that kind of thing. It became more exciting and I was living then as the guest of various tribes of Aborigines and that was very exciting and I was doing a bit of writing at the time illustrating my own writings and uh, involved in a lot of things even teaching art if I, if I was <laughs> unsure uh, for that period so really Australia can be very unusual a lot of the, the herbs and shrubs are very prickly as well so it, it's not a it's a kind of a harsh uh, existence that things are living um, it's very beautiful very the, the great expanses of the place are uh, uh, you have to be there to, to appreciate it. It's very hard to uh, actually put a, a proper feel on it. There's the smell of the place, there's eucalyptus kind of smell in the air, and uh, it's it's very hot usually. And But then it can vary from... Uh, that's the beauty of the country, and that it can go from rainforest and coastal lowland rainforest to mountainside kind of rainforest, and then you go out the other side of the same mountain range, it becomes open forest and semi-desert, and you're out into the dust in no time, so you've got all things in the same couple of hours. Um, well, it'll be about 100 miles between petrol stations, you know, that kind of thing. So you carry a bit of juice with you and you carry fan belts and you um, have all kinds of gear that just basic uh, things that would help you to be able to get a car through different kinds of country. And you have to know a few tricks as well. If you get caught in a, uh, some sort of a, a sandy area, you can get bogged in sand. You mustn't stop in soft, sandy areas. If you stop in certain kinds of sand, you never get going again. It's very hard if you get bogged in sand. So bulldust is another thing you can get bogged in. You know, there's all these, these things that you, you come up against. And having a good length of rope and knowing how to to winch yourself out using the car 
and, and just to a wheel rim bolted onto the outside of your wheel can, can winch you out of, the, out of the pit. But you don't leave your car, for instance, if you, if you do get into trouble, you stay with your car. If they go looking for you, they can find your car. They'll never find yourself. And that's happened so many times. Whole families have decided to walk. Ah, they'd say it's only you know, 10 miles. We'll make it no time at all. And they're never seen again. The car going into the, into the river is, a, is another problem. And it can be a problem if you find it's deeper in the middle than you expect it. And uh, there's nobody else around. Like there's 300 miles each direction in one case there uh, where uh, I just had to do it myself or I wouldn't be found again. But I was crossing the river and... Uh, the car got slewed around by the, the force of the river and the back wheels were coming off the ground. You just simply have to make a decision and I opened the door of the car and uh, that let the water in around me so now I'm sitting in water and it brought the car down onto the floor again as it were and I was able to drive along and of course going very slowly in first gear and hoping like heck that the, um, the water wasn't going to get in around the engine too much. I had the fan belt off which is very important. If you have the fan belt off in deep water it throws water over the engine and you short yourself out and you stop but when I got to the other side I couldn't get out of the water because the car was too heavy now <laughs> and I had to open the door and I had all kinds of unwashed clothes and things like that uh, stuffed onto the seats beside me and I had various other things piled into the passenger seat and when I opened the door the water rushed out beside me and all these things went out over the side and over the waterfall and down into the Gulf of Carpentaria. <laughs> Well, the Maltbarks were uh, people who were living in the Daly River area, and uh, so I was with them for, oh, uh, probably about three weeks or three or four weeks uh, on a stretch. Um, the, I was in that area several times, but this particular time I put the car on blocks and I went off with them, uh, and we kind of went walkabout, and it was great. We were doing an awful lot of fishing mainly, living on the river, and surrounded by... This was a crocodile, a very crocodile-infested river, and um, I I ended up taking quite a few small crocodiles from there, actually, eventually, and bringing them to another place. But um, a beautiful uh, sort of lifestyle with these people. They're they're very... um, They've got a great sense of humour and they, they have a great way of enjoying the, the bush and themselves. And, of course, they see everything as being a fella. A tree is a fella, a rock is a fella, the ground is um, Kunapipi, uh, the, the earth mother. So they have a lovely feeling for their own involvement with the soil and the land. And they're uh, a very kind of... Um, well, you have to live with these people for a while to realise that they're... Um, an honest and very interesting people to be with, you know. Of course, the, the, the so-called roads didn't even exist properly, uh, and usually if, the, if there was a shower of rain a few weeks beforehand and the grass grew, you couldn't find the road. So it was that kind of place. Uh, but travelling by water was by far the way to get the, the easier way to get to everywhere. And for all the period that I was there, uh, there weren't any proper roads around. And to be able to study a particular place, travelling by water, and we carry a Land Rover on the bow of, the, of my boat, 
and we could go ashore, open the bow down in two sections and drive ashore and make our own roads from wherever we happened to go ashore. That was if we had to go a certain distance inland. The being on the vessel gave us also a kind of little hotel to live in while we were travelling around, you know, because the galley facilities and the supplies and, and you know, all that kind of thing was all uh, making life a little easier. Though catching food in the area was extremely easy. Fishing was absolutely amazing, fishing there. And, of course, the better fishing is always where there are more crocodiles. The more crocodiles you come across, the, the better the fishing. Crocodiles are animals at the end of the food chain, and, of course, they keep the water in good condition. They're recycling everything that comes to the water's edge, including yourself, if you're silly enough. is the double-decker bus of the bush. If you step in front of a double-decker bus in any of our streets, you get squashed for your trouble. And likewise, if you don't read the signs and know at what time of the year to do not to do certain things, you'll walk into the middle of a crocodile's sort of area where she's laying a nest or laying eggs and making a nest and so on. And crocodiles essentially are... Uh, very predictable things they will always behave a certain way and the, like for instance some of the big crocodiles there, they're well into their second century and they've been known by Aborigines of many generations the same crocodile and then they're not going to get into trouble with this big crocodile he's a uh, part of the scene but generally um, people do get into trouble uh, if you're hunting them and you get bitten by one or if you are around about Christmas time in the wrong spot, a female will attack you, but she won't eat you. They're the ones we, we keep hearing about. We hear about people being attacked and getting away with it, torn to rags very often, just barely getting away with your life. But that wasn't a hungry crocodile. That crocodile shows itself on the surface of the water, rushes towards you and pulls you around the place and tells you to buzz off, really. It doesn't want you around. It's nervous because it's got a nest nearby. But there are the occasional ones, like the one uh, that I knew... Uh, um, in, in the Mission River um, while I was there this man, uh, Peter Reamers was eaten by a crocodile and he, after a pig hunt went in fishing, in, uh, swimming and he swam around for a good while and then of course uh, when he was getting out of the water as is always the case because when you have your back turned the hungry crocodile will come up behind you and uh, take you and it's, uh, you don't get away from those big crocodiles when you do something like that but this fellow should have known better the local blackfellas, their expression was this fellow is a white man for nothing uh, they see us as people who sort of fly in in aircraft one minute and then get eaten by the local crocodile. It's like, you know, they think it's ridiculous. And they thought this was a, an extraordinary thing to happen and they were kind of slightly amused about it all. It was a sad occasion, of course. Well, a, a group of people went out and killed the crocodile. Um, he, he was uh, found because the, the, the one, one of Peter's legs was actually floating on the surface and that was uh, easy then for, for us to find him. But we're very soft things and a crocodile is a very massive, terribly powerful animal. And even though we resent the idea of being eaten by crocodiles, th there's an awful lot of um, maiming goes on in, in car crashes all around us, and it doesn't even get to the headlines anymore. But um, when an animal decides to eat one of us, it becomes world news. Uh, Peter was sort of almost two days uh, in the crocodile before we uh, got the crocodile back onto the land and opened him up and everything else and took the, the body out. But he, he was complete inside, in one piece, uh, more or less in one piece uh, inside. On 89FM's wildlife programme today, Tom O'Byrne is joined by Barry Meskell. And it's on with the wellies as they head out to a flooded Lee Valley. Yes, we're uh, in the 
on the beginning, uh, the, the first little part of the what has been uh, re in recent years put together as the Lee Valley Wildlife Sanctuary, all the owners the river and we're right off the county wall. You can get in there all the time, yeah? Yeah. That was very interesting, yeah. though, the turbine house there, wasn't it? It is, it's lovely, isn't it? I thought let's get back to, um, to John John Sheehan and yeah. talk to him about it. Yeah, it's, it's one of these very old places, and yet it's in perfect running order. But I love the idea of water, uh, driving water. Uh, yeah. the, the whole idea that water is driving all that machinery and no need for electricity or and, and no pollution of any sort. It's a little bit like those old... Uh, uh, hydraulic rams that Just work. Imagine it's on been a going since um, 1867. Did you yeah, see the, the amazing wall there? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting area. So where are we off to now then? Uh, we're just going to go up here a little bit, and uh, there's a, a gap in the in the wall. We'll be able to get through into some of the flooded ground in the uh, on this side of the river here. You must know every nook and cranny, Tom, of the the county, not my country. But tell <laughs> me, how did you get into the, this this kind of programming? Fact, it's so interesting, isn't it? Well, I started uh, the first program I did was about five years ago with Dan Collins, and uh, from then on we've been doing them more regularly, and uh, <laughs> we end up doing what we're doing now. But um, it's sort of a thing that uh, just grew as we we kept uh, doing it. We got more into doing for going further afield and all that. Yes, but as soon as you do one, you see so much more material for the next one that uh, you well, can stand in any spot almost. Hmm, and uh, exactly, yeah. There's no end to the, to the amount of material available because uh, even with all the programs we've done, we haven't ever actually had to go back to the exact same place again. You know. What kind of reaction do you get to the programs? Well, very good. Uh, a lot of, uh, of course, phone calls and letters and all that kind of thing. But any feel I get from from outside, as it were, gives me to feel that uh, it's it's generally appreciated and people like the idea of. Uh, Coming up along here, yes. Okay, we'll put it I think it does work nicely. I think uh, coming along here, there's so much water around now that no, I don't think we're going to be able to do it here. It's too soggy. We're going to have to go further up. Yeah, where we could normally get through, it has uh, about four feet of water in it. And right. <laughs> and, uh, this place was impassable, in fact, uh, last week. Yes, there were quite a few flooded roads around here. Right along the Lee Road, in fact, the other road, which is parallel to it, the Carrigrand Road. Yeah. Both of them had two, three, three and a half feet of water in them. Yes, well, of course, it was all part of the where the river flowed in before, and it's very hard to avoid. Actually, I think the next gap, we'll the edge along yeah. here, okay. just somewhere along here, will manage we'll nice, nice nice stop here. Though, yeah, I think uh, just about beside this. In fact, we can go in front of that house. Yes, we can go in beside one. I remember calling in there years ago, trying to buy, buy an old Morris miner. In fact, it's still there right now. <laughs> they might sell it to me today. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a look. Let's see where the boot is. Okay, let's get the wellies. Alright, so here we are. So, you're putting the wellies on. My throat machine is going to Oh, yeah, just a second now. Get the binoculars too, just so that we can see what is in the distance. Bring a camera along as well, just in case we see something that's fascinating. Right, we're off. <coughs> yeah, we probably better. In fact, get a bit of shelter from the wind and uh, oh, yeah. get closer to the the natural sounds as well, back, uh, background yeah. atmosphere, you know. Yeah. So we'll have yeah, if we go into the gap down yeah, here, okay. we'll be able to see what's happening. Gosh, we haven't seen.
seen it this high for a while. Obviously, the lads here at the waterworks are they're very familiar with the term. Oh, well, they've seen uh, us here before. <laughs> sure they have, Doing yeah. the same kind of thing. It looks lovely when it's uh, when there's this much water around. The uh, it reminds you here a little bit of the the great uh, falls that you'd find in other parts of the world. Right. Big tonnage of water travelling over the edge. The water's actually going over the edge of the wall there. Okay, so perhaps we might, we might uh, describe where we are now, Tom. Earlier we were talking about um, where we might go, so perhaps you might pick it up yourself here now and tell us where we are. Yes, we're uh, in the on the beginning, uh, the, the first little part of the what has been uh, re in recent years put together as the Lee Valley Wildlife Sanctuary. All the owners from from this section of the river, and we're right opposite the county hall. We're, we're beside the waterfall here. And it's, it's really lovely. It looks very natural. Obviously, there's going to be... Uh, there's been a lot of adjustment on, in the past. Uh, concrete has been used on the sluices. There's a fish pass right beside us to help the salmon to go up. But a lot of the rocky outcrops right across this area obviously are natural. And so going back into the distant past, it must have been uh, a sort of... Uh, doing enough <laughs> but at the same time we're doing an awful lot nowadays that we haven't been doing uh, in previous years so there's there's every reason to be very optimistic about the way things are going um, I think you have to have a lot of faith in the the generation coming on because they are well informed in comparison to the previous batch if you like so it's a case of we, we know that they are they do know what's happening uh, and they do know how to avoid spoiling things they have more appreciation uh, going for the countryside and so I think things are going to be okay excuse me a second I've got to answer this hello that's right. Oh, yes, fine. Oh, and are you sure it's a jackdaw? Does he have blue eyes? <laughs> Great. And he lo he's one of the Crow family, of course, yeah, with sort of a dusty grey head. Grand, so I, I operate from home, so my... Well, the, the room I'm using in there now has filing cabinets and answering machines and photocopiers and all that sort of thing. And uh, I, I operate from there and uh, a lot of stuff comes my way all the time. And just that people are asking me questions about things and the phone, it could ring any minute. It's all the time on the hop there. People asking questions about various things. They find injured things. And, of course, as the year goes on, uh, the there will be bats uh, coming in and the the sort of a bat hospital here during the summer and that means um, putting little splints on their wings and getting them to fly again and feeding them in that process and so on and uh, the birds that come in with damaged wings and we get a lot of them flying there's always the casualties that don't make it the, the ones that uh, simply they've been damaged inside as well and you don't always know that so you have a few casualties all the time as well but Last year, for instance, I I put, um, I think it was six kestrels and a number of other sparrowhawks, uh, three barn owls and uh, a peregrine falcon and a few birds like that back into the, into the air again. That That's very satisfying to see them flying up, up and away when they come in with a damaged wing or whatever. And so 
there's quite a lot of good, successful stuff happening here. From a study point of view, it's interesting for me to be doing it, and I find it's easy to look after four or five things. If I'm looking after one thing at all, I can look after a few more, so I don't find it any strain to look after these things. I like to be out doing physical things uh, when the weather is right. I don't always get time to do that, but I've got an awful lot of physical work to do outside to just get this place to be the way I'd like it to be. So I like that kind of thing. But um, I'm writing and I'm involved with different associations and organisations. Despite the fact that there's so little now left of the Kowloon Bridge above water, what's beneath the sea is still causing a lot of concern. And what's particularly annoying to local people and local environmental groups is that the entire salvage effort now seems to have been completely abandoned and there's no national interest in the problem. Well, that was a, a period uh, that really... In, there was no mechanism around to, to cater for this sort of uh, occurrence and nobody actually was in a position to do anything uh, in, in a very professional sort of way and the official line at the time was just to put everything down as it, as it arrived on the beach to kill it and uh, in some areas the, there, there were no birds at all found uh, officially <laughs> so everything that was found was, was killed. Well I feel we learned an awful lot by studying what we were doing and we had a better um, result uh, in the, in, especially over the six months that we held the birds uh, um, we, we had better results than the RSPCA in, in England. So very small numbers went back into the sea because there was an awful lot of oil continually on the sea in the, in, all along the coast. So we hung on to some birds too long and had more casualties because it's very difficult to feed birds on frozen food continuously. Uh, and we learned, but we, I think what we did come up with uh, gave us the knowledge to be able to do better the next time such a thing would happen. And uh, we're just getting better all the time. You, you have to meet these situations. It meant, of course, working around the clock at the time. We had hundreds of birds out in the conservatory there, and it was really noisy in the mornings because the, the din that guillemots and razorbills can kick up is quite an extraordinary thing. The guillemots have a... Have a, a sort of a, a sound that sounds like no, no, and in, in the middle of the night time they'd all chime out uh, with this no, 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 no. <laughs> and it was kind of an interesting one. Well, the guillemots have quite a squawky sound and uh, another, another hair raising sound too. But the, the only way we can prevent it is by imagining what uh, can happen uh, and trying to make sure that whatever we're doing with polluting substances along the coast. We have to make sure that they're handled properly. It's a very difficult one. We've got an awful lot of big ships passing by. We do, we've no control over the condition of those ships. And yet, because of the fact that we're in a very prominent place on the edge of the Atlantic, we're going to have these ships getting into trouble all the time and being brought into Bantry Bay and sometimes running aground on our shores. Uh, maybe people, like for instance the Kowloon Bridge was at sea uh, without anybody on it uh, as it went round in circles for a couple of days and people should have been bo should have boarded that, I think they were afraid of picking up a bill you see, but people, it should have been boarded, it should have been the engine could have been stopped and started, even though there was no rudder it could have been stopped and started when it was pointing in the right direction and it could have been kept off the coast now, there were enough of us around with experience on boats uh, with skippers' tickets and so on, that could have kept that boat away from the, the shore. But we left it go round and round and round and round, and it ran up on the rocks, as of course it would. So there wasn't any sort of mechanism there to take responsibility. No people who could make proper decisions in the right places. I felt a, a lot of the people who should have made those decisions uh, just didn't, and it was a mess that shouldn't have happened. I hope we've learned an awful lot from that. 
Well, I suppose I've got lots of pet dreams and <laughs> pet projects, all right. There are things that we're sort of starting to do now, anyway. The uh, Sanctuary Link project is probably the first uh, one that uh, we got uh, into uh, paper condition in any way. We, we've decided to, to get a kind of uh, necklace of sanctuaries around the country. So it simply means um, different branches of the Irish Wildlife Federation would take charge of their own particular areas and other environmentally interested sort of groups would be asked to, to, to take a, an interest in their own particular area. It means getting an ordnance survey maps. It means marking where all the little woodlands are. And it means joining each one of these woodlands together with a, a healthy strip of hedgerows between one and the other. It's, it's a project that will take 10 years maybe or more to, to get right around. And I'm hoping that it will include the six counties in the north as well. Corridors, they would be wildlife corridors, uh, bringing uh, so as to help uh, bird life and squirrels and all kinds of things to get from one patch of woodland to another patch of woodland to all over the country. The other thing then is the Island Trees Project. The Island Trees Project is one where um, we're organising um, transport to the islands um, in various ways, boats as well as helicopters to get onto the islands. It's just a system of um, trying to get trees to grow on the islands at all. Um, in previous centuries, there were trees on the islands, on most of the islands, and uh, they, the bushes and trees were cut down by people living there for a short-term and sometimes long-term areas. They, they cut them down for firewood, and if you cut all the trees off uh, an island, uh, you have to deliberately plant more trees because they won't regenerate when they're on an island. It's a restoration, habitat restoration project, really to give an opportunity to uh, have a, a small little habitat developing on an island that would give um, bird life and invertebrate life a chance of, of survival there, where at the moment they cannot. <laughs> the planet, yes. Well, it's always a subject that shuts people up, but we do have to control our own numbers without war, and we have to, in a way... All other forms of life that are comparable with us, um, predatory animals and other, and we are a predatory animal in many ways, and we have to see ourselves more, more sensibly. The, the idea that we're super animals and don't have to be uh, concerned by anything, about anything else and that we can just get away with anything and adjust the world to suit our whims and fancies, that's not good enough anymore. We know we're, we're making a heck of a mess of the place in, and we're, we know we're putting a great pressure on the, the global thing. We're hacking down forests everywhere. We're putting an awful lot of terrible stuff into seas where we're dumping vast quantities of toxic waste in the seas and so on. We, we know it's going to catch up with us. We know it's a short-term sort of behaviour. Uh, we should have a, a grand plan for the future, uh, a, a population size to, to aim at in relation to our, our effect in the, in, on the country generally. We should be able to balance our resources against our numbers and so that we don't burst our boundaries and start cutting each other's throats again like we did in previous centuries. So there's an awful waste going on and it's all to do with the sort of economy we've got. The European type economy, the Western European economy anyway, is sort of one that has to expand to survive and that alone is, is something that shouldn't be... Uh, we have to re-question all these things. We have to reassess all this, our approach to living on the planet Earth has to be assessed. The idea that we're going to be able to fly off to another planet, uh, we're going to be so, so sophisticated in the future, <laughs> isn't going to happen for more than half a dozen people in a, in a spaceship kind of thing.
we're stuck with this planet and we've got to look after what we've got. And we've got a very beautiful world. And uh, it's, if only I could bring people to the places I've been to, they'd really appreciate what we've got to look after. It's a very beautiful world. And being curious and inquisitive and sort of being in love with everything all the time is sort of a, it's rather a nice way to be. Maybe I'm just sort of uh, talking about myself, but um, I don't know. I think if we only realised what we're endangering, we wouldn't allow what's, uh, what's happening in many cases.